Have you ever had somebody say something to you that you simply just couldn't believe came out of their mouth? I mean, you were clutching your pearls and wondering why would they even say something like that? Well, if that's the case, then you should certainly go back and listen to L'Oreal Noel's story in our last episode. But in this episode, we're going to get into it with Kevin Hoffman. Welcome to Diversity Dish, where we're dishing on everything diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice related. My name is Sidrola Maruska, and we're bridging the gap between what needs to be said and what needs to be heard. Those individual experiences that are often ignored or simply dismissed. Sometimes I'm dining alone, sometimes I'm dining with friends, and sometimes I'm dining a la carte. No matter how I'm dining, it promises to be delicious. Let's dig in. Thank you for being here. Before we get into our episode, I'd like to send a shout out to my supporters over at Patreon. Those people who are experiencing extra training, exclusive audio, exclusive podcasts, articles, and workshops. They're the ones who are helping me continue this work and who help support this podcast. If you'd like to find out how you can become a patron, find me over at Patreon, patreon.com backslash Cedrola Maruska. Now, let's get into our episode. By the time he was two years old, Kevin Hoffman had survived an abortion, been given away by his mother, adopted by a family of another race, and woke up to a burning cross in his front yard. Kevin was born in Detroit in August 1967, two weeks after the riots that changed that city forever. It was out of these amazing circumstances his life began. It was out of these experiences he tells his story, a story of struggle and joy, pain and passion, and most of all, hope. Hey, Kevin, it is so good to have you. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I am. I looked at your background and it was just, I thought you would have a lot to say to the audience. So I'm glad that you made some time for us today. So what I usually like to do is I like to start off kind of relaxed and personal so that we can get to know you a little bit better. And then we can get into the meat and potatoes, as I like to say, since we're on diversity dish. Um, so the first question I want to ask you is, what are you passionate about right now? And this took me, you know, 53 years old. So it took me 53 years to figure this out. But I think, <laughs> and I don't think anymore, I know it is. So I'm the result of an affair between my white mother and black father. They work together in mm-hmm. the Chevy stamping plant, Livonia, Michigan, a suburb of Detroit yeah. in the late 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, Happily married just to two different people. Right. And so when my mother found out she was pregnant, initially, actually, she went to her sister and asked for a loan. And her sister gave her the money. And my Mm -hmm. mother had every intention to travel from Livonia, Michigan to Flint, Michigan, which is about an hour away. Uh Uh-huh. And my mother was going to take that money and have me aboarded. Okay. Somewhere along that 60-mile road. Yeah. I don't know if it was in the first hour or first minute or the last minute, my mother changed her mind, chose to go home to her white husband and tell him she had had an affair with the black man in the late 60s in Detroit 
in a city that was literally the races were at each other's throats so much right. so that when I was born, I was born two weeks after the riots in Detroit, the riots that, that talk to any Detroiter, it yeah. changed the landscape. It changed the DNA. It changed so much about that city. And Yikes. so that's what I was yeah. born into. Yeah. And so the only caveat behind my birth was that my mother's husband insisted that she put me up for adoption. So I was immediately adopted at three months old. Yeah. White minister, his wife, and their three biological children. So I'm the youngest in that family. Yeah. And we lived in a suburb of Detroit for a while, mm -hmm. for about for the first three years of my life. Yeah. That community welcomed us by burning a cross in our yard <laughs> oh when I was 11 months old. Oh, my um, God. We stayed there for another two years. And then finally, I think my parents decided the city's going to change us before we change it. Yeah. And we need to leave. And so we moved to Detroit. Yeah. My father pastored a church that was half black, half white. Yeah. And where we lived was in a black neighborhood. So from age three to 18, I was always around kids that shared my skin color. Right. And that was life changing for me. And so trying to figure out who I was and all that was going on around me, like I said, it took me 53 years to figure out. What I'm most passionate about is trying to find some reconciliation between the two races that I'm made up of. Right. It is probably more challenging today than it's ever been my whole life. Really? And yeah. why would you say that? Because, be because, you know, everybody likes to say, well, there has been progress and things are getting better. And, you know, I, you hear all those things. And so for you to say that is very interesting to me. So why? Why? And there's no easy way to say this, and it's going to turn some people off. And you just to the point where it. that's okay. That's We've never it. had a leader in charge of our country that is so against people like me. I have never felt like a guest in my own home as much as I have these last four years. Yes. I have never felt like I am less than yeah. when a president of the United States speaks. Whenever yeah. he says those blacks, Yes. Or that black guy. Yeah. And again, I've been trained in 53 years to pick up very subtle tones of racism. Yes. No one can convince me that he's not signaling, signaling to yes. a certain group of people some right. very damaging and scary thoughts and ideas. Yeah. And it's targeted towards certain groups. Yes. That scares me more than anything, quite honestly. Yes. And that makes it harder. Absolutely. It does. Yeah. And, it, and he's given people license to say and do things that we were too civilized to say and do four and a yes. half years ago. Right. And so, yeah, that's very scary, quite honestly, for the LBGT community, for the yes. community of color, for women. Yes. Because you have armed people and given them every right to feel they can say and do whatever they want because you say it's okay. That's right. And yes. So they're right. And there are. Every day, I think, is this trip to Walmart the day that I'm going to get a confrontation like we're seeing on all these cell phone videos? Yes. And that's yes. scary. You are right. You're right. Because I do. I have. I do realize that I walk around with more apprehension now than I ever have. Yeah. I walk around, you know, especially being in a, in a 
predominantly white area myself, I walk around with uh, an idea of I have to be, my, my antenna has to be even more in tune yes. with what's happening around me yes. than it ever had to be before yes. because of that situation for sure. Yeah. And you said something that I found really interesting and that was, oh, it's going to escape me now. It's going to escape my 52 year old brain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and that was that he says things there. There are things that are said that we hear and that others go don't hear. Right. Because, and I found it very interesting because I've had people say to me, well, tell me what he says that is racist. And I say, if I tell you after being born into and living in this skin that, that what he said is racist, I, you should be kind of hearing me. I cannot give you the proof you seek because you are not tuned in to seeing it. Therefore, if someone tells you, you know, if someone comes to you and says, what you did or what you said hurt me, I cannot say, no, it didn't. Exactly. Yeah. I can't do that. And it's the same thing. So a lot of people are going, well, tell me exactly what he said or exactly what he did or exactly this or exactly that. I'm like, you know what? There are certain things that are not exactly, they are simply nuanced, but we know that they're there and we can't, because even if it's a statement that he makes, it's always going to be, well, that doesn't sound racist to me. And it's like, yeah, but it's like, if you went into the doctor, so, you know, how, how many years does a doctor go to school? It's like going into the doctor's office and the doctor's saying, I'm going to give you my professional opinion because I've gone to school and I've studied this stuff. Right. And he says, yeah, you know, I think, you know, this lump is cancerous. And mm -hmm. <laughs> all the tests I've done shows me that. Mm -hmm. You go, nah, I don't think so. I think you got it wrong. <laughs> like, and we've had, you and I have had, you know, like <laughs> five times as much training. So right. Right. This default should be, yeah, you guys probably have a little bit more knowledge on race and racism and the impact. Of right. It. Right. So maybe we should listen to you. And maybe right. if it offends you, we should just sit with you in that instead of trying to justify why you shouldn't be offended. Because all that does is make me more offended. Right. It offends yeah. me more. All right. Yeah. It's like, so, I'm more offended now. I don't even want to talk to you. Right. So I, I don't. Yeah. And, and, and that. So here's a great story of when I grew up and I remember uh, lived in that black neighborhood for five years. My dad gets this promotion to be the assistant to the bishop. And we're like the Jeffersons. We're moving on up <laughs> you know, two miles away, still in the city limits of Detroit. But yeah. now it's an all white neighborhood. And I'm yeah. the first black kid in that neighborhood. And I'm so self-conscious at eight years old because it's the first time that I'm a minority all the time. Yeah. So I'm trying to navigate my way through this white neighborhood in Detroit. And uh, fortunately, we had this great white family across the street who became good friends of mine, talk, still talk to him every day. Mm -hmm. And I remember some wondering, 
is this friend going to be the type of friend that I can bring my whole self to, which means mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. can I talk about race and what I'm dealing with, mm -hmm. you know, around me. Mm -hmm. And so I remember uh, sitting with my good friend and we're sitting there working on our bikes. We had turned them upside down and we're just playing mechanics on our bikes <laughs> on the street. And I turned to him and just casually say, man, you know, Mrs. Match, that mean lady down the street, you know, I think she treats me differently just because I'm black. And yeah. this was so pivotal in our relationship where my yes. best friend Mike says, man, you might be right. And that's mm. all I needed. I, in every, anytime you go through something yes. or something that just hurts you, yes. you just want someone there to hear your experience. Yes. And unfortunately, what we will often get is, yeah, man, I think Mrs. Matz treats me differently. Nah, man, she's nah. mean to everybody. You got that wrong. <laughs> and that just dismisses yes. my experience. Yes. And so I was so fortunate that he did that. And quite honestly, and I talk about this when I speak to mm -hmm. groups, mm -hmm. what we need to do, and this is my main goal, especially when I talk to schools is, Mm -hmm. Somehow, with the administration and the faculty and staff, we've got to come up with a way where the kid with the Black Lives Matter t-shirt mm -hmm. and the kid with the Make America Great Again hat can coexist. Mm -hmm. And how we do that is we tell the kids that you can own the three feet around you. Mm -hmm. And so if I own my three feet, I can believe what I believe. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to impact your three feet. Mm -hmm. And we just have to understand if we're not in relationship, maybe we shouldn't go there on certain conversations. And mm -hmm. when we become friends, like I did with Mike, and I opened the door to that conversation, mm -hmm. I was sharing my three feet with him. Mm -hmm. And then he shared his three feet with me, mm -hmm. which coincidentally becomes six feet. And that's big. Right, right, right. COVID <laughs> world now. But that expands our world slightly. But I yeah. caution people. Do not do that. Like, that's where Facebook gets a lot of us. Mm -hmm. Don't have these conversations with people that you're, never, you're not invested in, you don't have relationships with, that you don't know, that you'll never see again. Don't yep. waste time trying to convince people to believe yep. the way you do. Because yep. I would honestly, 75% of the time, you are never going to convince that person to come believe the way you do. No, nope, that's your time. right. And, and really, that doesn't matter. So... Protect your three feet, give them the, the respect to own their yeah. own three feet. And our three feet don't have to come in contact with each other. <laughs> they don't have to come in contact. We can just, you know, live and let live, right? Yeah. Yes. What you said was, was exactly right. It's like, don't waste your time. I don't have the energy right. to try to convince someone who hasn't even opened the door to being convinced to even to even begin to grasp what I have to say because they're never going to I'm going to be banging my head up against right. the wall and they're just going to be go happy go lucky oh whatever so I don't I don't do that because I don't I don't have that time I don't have that energy I don't have I just don't have it right yeah I'm not going to be mean but I'm I'm also not going to engage. I'm not I, engaging does not help anything. So just let it go. Yeah. So, and you know, you know, there are some people that are open 
and yes. they're kind enough to at least hear you. Those mm-hmm. are the people you can have conversations with. But again, mm-hmm. I still caution people, work on the relationship first. Yes. And then go there. Don't, yeah, don't do it backwards because you'll never get there. Right. <laughs> don't do it backwards. <laughs> so, so you do a lot of speaking with schools and, and universities and that sort of thing. What is your, what is your, what is the superpower that you bring to these events? I've been, so I'm the son of a Lutheran minister. Yes. Um, so my adoptive father was a minister and I think I have, through osmosis, kind of gained his ability to tell stories. So, um, <laughs> nice. and when I wrote, so I wrote a book called <laughs> Growing Up Black and White, which yes. is just, it's just our story growing up as this unusual family, white family adopted this biracial kid in a yes. city that has a whole history of racial issues. Yes. I just wanted to share that story. What I also, what was really important to me when I wrote the book was, how do I talk about race in a way that your average white person can still read it and not put it down? Because mm-hmm. I wanted to give them, quite honestly, I wanted to be heard as a person of color. Mm-hmm. So I wanted them to experience and see how I experienced this country we live in. Mm-hmm. And so I've been told I did it right or did it, did a nice job of it. Nice. So the book, a lot of the book is just storytelling where it's yeah, yeah me and my bet, my best friend, this white kid, mm-hmm. we do these crazy things in this white neighborhood. But in between those crazy things, I share how I experience certain things as a person of color. Yeah. So I think, and I've been told my superpower is that I can say things in a way that it's digestible. And then people walk away going, man, like you said earlier. Right. Someone is, we've ta- I've talked about that with someone else, mm-hmm. but they just didn't say it the way you did. Now I guess. Yes. It. Yes. Um, and a lot of us have to understand too, when we talk about this conversation of race and racism. Yes. And this is a church thing, but sometimes it's just your job to plant the seed and you're never going to see the result of what you said or did. You have to be good with that and then just walk away. But so many of us want to be the seed planter, the waterer, the harvester, (laughs) like in five minutes. And that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. You're so right. You might just be the person to just plant the seed and be gone. You know, it's like, it's like planting a tree. You plant a tree and you're not going to get a nice full grown full tree for, you know, 15, 20 years. But so you just have to plant it and say, you know what, I think it's going to be all right. Let me just, let's just do that and and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And, and they grow. Seeds do grow, right? They do grow. Tell us a little bit more about your book, because you said it talks about your journey, finding your racial identity. Mm -hmm. What lessons did you learn along the way? What are a few lessons, I guess? (laughs) just the impact of race yeah Um, yeah so i a lot of times i will go into the communities that i'm from so white families that adopted children of color Mm -hmm. uh we're hearing a lot about that now because the the next supreme court nominee is a woman who has adopted two kids from haiti yes and so we're going to hear a lot about Oh, God bless her. She did this wonderful thing. She took these two orphans in. Right. Um, so you're going to get a lot of that, which 
that's very abrasive to an adoptee to keep hearing how great, yes, especially a transracial adoptee, to keep hearing that these wonderful white saviors came in, swooped in and, and yes. saved. I'm already starting to hear that. And then, mm-hmm. and then so then the white family keeps, they, people keep piling that on. Oh, you're so great for doing that. You're so wonderful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as an adoptee, I just want to say, whoa, hold on. Mm-hmm. Those children have changed your family in a way that nobody on this earth could have. Mm-hmm. Without them in your family, your family is different. Mm-hmm. So don't get it twisted. That child brings something to that family a lot more than you're giving them credit for. Mm-hmm. And so. That's yeah, right. You did a good thing, but the mm-hmm. child is also, you're getting something. Don't, it's not a selfless act either. Right. <laughs> right. And so, yeah, so that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. And so one of the things I teach families like that, and man, I, I would love to talk to that family because within five minutes, <laughs> I could figure out whether they get it or not. Mm-hmm. The assumption is no way can a white family be racist if they adopt a black children, real, Which, a child. Really? Yeah, I can give yes. you plenty of examples. Mm. Plenty of examples of people in my family. Right. So... That that ain't it. Just just because you happen to adopt a child of color doesn't mean you're not racist. Right. Um, and so, yeah, probably one of the biggest lessons I've learned growing up. Right. The powerful impact of race. And so very powerful. I warn those families, don't assume that just because they're your child, they're still a child of color. So once they step foot outside your front door, yep. they are, you know, they're no longer seen as Richard and Judy's kid. Yep. I'm just some black kid. Yep. And then when you really start to study the impact of race and racism, you you start to see some things like, you know, the average black child, people assume they are three or four years older than they actually are, which doesn't yep. seem like a lot. But it is. But coming living in Toledo, Ohio, mm-hmm. two hours away from Cleveland, where mm-hmm. 12-year-old Tamir Rice was mm-hmm. assumed that he was an adult, in a park with a toy gun, yep. he was killed within a second. Yep. That's the impact of the fact that people of color are seen, as, children of color are seen a lot older than they are. And that, mm-hmm. get, that can cause friction because I'm going to expect a 12-year-old to act different than a 16 or 17-year-old. Of course. But when they don't act the way I think they should, police see them differently, Author- people in authority see them differently. They mm-hmm. get punished differently in school. Mm-hmm. The, the punishment in school is disproportionate than yes. kids that are doing the same thing and their skin color is different. That's what I was thinking about when you were telling me the story about going to camp and mistakenly stepping in front of this white kid and turning around because and smiling because you knew that that smile would often get you off. But that's also the same age that that cute little black kid turns it's into no just kid. a black kid. Yeah. And, and it crossed my mind when you said that. He said, oh, well, you smiled and he gave you that, you know, that look. And I was like, oh, that's because you had, you had moved already. Had ex- and you had my cuteness mis- had expired. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, and right. I tell transracial parents that all the time. Yes. That, yeah, you're, he's this adorable little kid. Yes. But what happens, and, and this plays into it too, 
So then an adorable little kid whose skin is darker than mine grows up to be this six foot tall fifth grader. Ooh, yes. That becomes a serious issue for some families because you have to understand that that child is now seen as a threat to many people. Yes, absolutely. And being the mother of, of biracial children, I completely understand and I talk to my children about this and like you know you're not always going to be here in this community you're not always going to be here in in our house which is why I tell you certain things and I tell you the things that that to protect you when you leave I don't want to not be sleeping every night (laughs) when you're out there exactly I know what can happen I want you to be aware of things but yes it's that's a very that's a very real thing with with families right so besides having you know a a a, <laughs> a cross burned in your yard and you know some kid giving you this horrible look when you're like 7 years old and this innocent kid and you just you don't even realize that you were doing anything wrong what is something else that has happened to you that would seem fantastical to someone, but that was real. Because what I like to do with this podcast is to kind of bridge the gap of things that, that happen to us that we may not say or are not reportable or we just feel like people are just not going to understand, but they happen and they are real. So to get those stories out so that other people can hear them and maybe hear them more than once. So they go, man, that really does happen. Oh, there's so many. So, so, so I grew up in Detroit. Yeah. Spent all my time living in Detroit till I was 18. And so here's an interesting family dynamic, which was in our house, we didn't talk about race or adoption. And I don't think, I don't think my parents set out and said, we're not going to talk about these things. Because interestingly, before I came along, my parents were, would spend their weekends protesting unfair housing laws in Southeast Michigan, Mm -hmm. because back then they were the, they were called closed communities, which meant there were certain communities that people of color were not welcome. Yep. And so if you were like me and broke that color barrier, you'd be Mm -hmm. welcomed with a cross burning on your yard or you'd be welcomed with the police showing up at your door every hour on the hour Mm -hmm. because they just wanted you out of their community. So my parents were protesting that before I came along. Mm -hmm. So they understood racial inequality Mm -hmm. and just the need for social justice. But we never talked about race or racism in the house. And I don't think they specifically said we're not going to. I think they thought... When Kevin's ready, he'll come talk to us about this. Right. Interesting. And we all agree at this point, I shouldn't have been given that job. <laughs> like, right, that wasn't right. my job. Like, yeah, exactly. a child shouldn't be. Yeah. And so, unfortunately, yes. we didn't talk about it. And so that, yeah, so we should have talked about stuff like that. So, sure. and, be, and why that's important is because when I was 18 and graduating from high school, I was going to go to college. That was always the plan, go to college. Yeah. So I decided to go to college. But when my college search, I didn't take into account the impact of rates. Right. And so I chose to go to this very small 
and us Michigan people do this all the time. So this is Michigan, <laughs> Detroit's here, uh, the central Michigan's here. But so there's a small private college, Elma College. Uh-huh. 1,100 students, only 13 of us were black. Wow. And that was culture shock to me. So I go on this campus and I'm Oof. trying to fit in. And, and it wasn't like I was being called the N-word every day. It was, and we didn't even have this term back then. This was in the mm -hmm. mid 80s. It was the little microaggressions that I would get walking across campus yes. constantly. So I yes. walk across campus and Elma prided itself in being this friendly campus. And it was. So when you walked across campus, everybody would speak as you passed mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many times I'd be walking down a path across the campus. I'd be behind one white student and one white student would be coming towards us. They would yeah. say hi to the white student yep. and get to me yep. and totally change who they were mm -hmm. and go, what's up? Yes. Oh and my it, goodness. That graded oh goodness. me. <laughs> and so you see why that just... It just, yes. I was, I just rejected that because yes. I don't expect you to change to be who you think I want you to be. Just right. be who you are. Just, yes. When you change, what you're telling me mm -hmm. is that I see you different. I will yes. never see you as the same. Same. And I will always treat you different. Yes. So it was those little microaggressions that would yes. drive me crazy. And, if, and I, there was no area to complain about that. Because right. No because who do seen. you tell? Who do you tell that they said hi to the person in front of you, and then they said "What's up" to me? Yeah. Then they're gonna look at you like you have two heads, and yeah. you just grew a third one out of your yeah. your, your neck. They're gonna say, and, and, "What difference does that make?" It, it makes a makes huge a difference. difference. To me. Yes. <laughs> and what they will say is, "You just looking for something to complain about." Yes. You. You would have been upset if they ignored you. You're it right. Would I would have been. It would have been the same thing. It would have had the same impact. Yes. yes. Whether yes. they ignored you or they said, what's up? It's yes. the same impact because both show that they're not going to treat you just as a person. They're going yes. to see you as a color and treat you with whatever preconceived notions they have in their head about how you want to be related to. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And, and you have never spoke to me. So you don't know if I right. talk like that or not. Yes, you don't know exactly. if I'm from Detroit or from right. some rural yes. <laughs> you know, yes. town in the middle of nowhere. But yep. your assumption is you are black yep. and this is what black is. So that is, got yes. that a lot. Yeah. And then then dating was interesting because there were very few black women right. uh, on our campus. And so, you know, I used to joke and say I was this equal opportunity dater. Right. And so I dated a few white girls and that was just, it was not a pleasant experience where, man, race came up all the time. And so to your question, where did I feel yeah. that slight? I remember, yeah, I was dating this girl and I'd been dating her for over a year. And I, I wasn't a jerk to her, mm -hmm. but the response that I was getting from her girlfriends, mm -hmm. quite honestly, was just out of pocket. I couldn't understand why they didn't like me. Mm. And even as a person of color, it took me years to look back on that and go, oh, oh. 
that's why they kept chirping in her ear all the time. I, and I, and it, man, I was so confused with that because I was like, you know, I could be a jerk, but I wasn't a jerk to her. Right. So why are you coming at me like this? And, and I was just like, oh, they yeah. just didn't want her dating a black dude. Yeah. And that's yeah. what it was. And so, yeah. and people will, yeah. And I'm sure and, people have and heard again, that and go, nah, that ain't it. Exactly. That was it. And again, you have never convinced me that it was That it wasn't. You know, things like that happen. Things like that are real. And when we say, you know, this is what this is. This is what the impact is. They're like, oh, you're just being sensitive. That, I'm sure that's not what they meant. And I'm sure that's not what... And then if they would go to ask that person, that person would say, no, that's not what I meant. I didn't mean that at all. That's not what I was thinking. Yeah. But what that is, that's just bias that you're yes. harboring. That's just, you know, it's there. And yeah. that's what you need to understand and confront and face so that you can make a difference. You can change that behavior. I say to people all the time, I'm like, because I have, you know, I have people who go, well, I'm just always afraid of saying the wrong thing. I say, well, think of it this way. If you wouldn't say it to a white person, don't say it to a black person. Mm -hmm. Be who you are. And then when you, right? And then when you move forward and you get to know that person, see exactly. how yes. you interact with that person. Yes. But just don't switch it up. Yeah. It's enough that we have to code switch. <laughs> exactly, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. We have to code switch all the time for your comfort. When yeah. we decide we don't want to code switch for your comfort, then you feel uncomfortable and you're wondering why. This is the same thing that we feel. Yeah. Sit in it, understand it. Right. Let's let's talk about it and let's get through it. Yeah. Right? Let's yeah. let's let's do this thing. Yeah. So instead of denying, denying, denying that it even is there and that we're all collectively crazy, and if we all have, you know, these, these crazy thoughts, no, it's there. Yeah. And so absolutely. Wow. So <laughs> we've talked, we've talked a lot about what you've experienced growing up and what are some ideas, some solutions that you think that we can have in order to have these conversations, in order to move forward, in order to change the way, the impact, the way that race impacts everything in this country? If you have some ideas, which I'm thinking you might. <laughs> yeah, so the biggest thing is I think we need to do a better job of listening. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I will say this, I've kind of given a very drab view of, of America to this point, but let me share this with you as well, too. Yes. Um, the interesting thing with the civil rights movement in the late 60s was what really caused that change to happen and people mm -hmm. to jump on board on that movement mm -hmm. was TV. Mm -hmm. was the advent of color TV into the homes of so many Americans, TVs became more affordable. So you have more mm -hmm. TVs in the homes. And every night people would turn on the news and they would see what we had been saying for decades, which was, yes. we are being brutalized and attacked by the police. Yeah. And so yes. every night people would turn on their, radio, their TV and they would see us being attacked by German, she German shepherds tearing our flesh apart or yeah. 
fire hoses being left. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was at that point where many white Americans said, this is so unacceptable. We've mm-hmm. got to make change. And mm-hmm. so the civil rights movement doesn't become what it, what it became without white people. Honestly, sure. we don't have the numbers to make those changes. Right. And so they came on board and created this change. Yeah. So now you fast forward you know, four or five decades later. Yeah. The advent of the telephone that right? has brought... <laughs> what we have said for decades back on into everybody's living rooms wherever they are wherever and, they are and you combine that with what happened in march which yes. was the country shut down we were all kind of bunkered mm-hmm. in in our homes yeah. not having much to do all mm-hmm. on our phones and we got to sit there and witness eight minutes and 46 seconds of this police officer's knee on George Floyd's neck. Yes. That was the perfect storm for people to finally go. And you can't find anybody now. Usually in the past when stuff like that happened, they would yeah. all, nah, you don't know what he did before then. You, like we did it with Eric Garner when he was selling yes. those loose cigarettes and they choked him out. And he was mm-hmm. saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And everybody was like, no, nah, he shouldn't have been doing it. It was illegal to sell smoke, those cigarettes. Shouldn't have right. been doing it, shouldn't have resisted arrest. Mm-hmm. people aren't saying that same thing about George Floyd mm-hmm. because it was so horrible what was done. Mm-hmm. 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 Uh, and we were literally watching this man die in front mm-hmm. And for the record, as we talk about this, we need to also remember, and I think that people often forget when they're saying, well, what precipitated it? What did he do before? Blah, blah, blah. The police are not supposed to kill you. Exactly. Whether or not you Second are job. guilty of anything, right. they are not supposed to kill you because then they become the judge and the jury. Right. That is not acceptable. That is not part of our justice system. But exactly. people always want to justify. And I'm like, but they're still not supposed to kill you. So right. how right. do you, you know? Yes. <laughs> and there's so much wrong with the way they are trained and socialized through the academies where a police officer brought this up, which I never thought of, but yeah, every day, all day through training, we are taught to anticipate worst case scenario. Mm. So that's in the back of your head that this traffic stop is going to end in a shooting, right? So I got to be prepared. Right. So you add that in with what you spoke on, implicit bias. Yes. Up until this point, all my life, the Mm -hmm. media, everything has told me black Mm -hmm. people are dangerous and violent. So now I got that in my head. And training has told me that this could pop off at any minute. Mm -hmm. I got to be on edge. Mm -hmm. I got to get him before he gets me. Mm -hmm. That means I got to do an illegal chokehold to bring him under control. That's fine. And Mm -hmm. then then you always get the arguments. Well, they should never resist arrest. Have someone sitting on top of you choking you. I don't know how I would respond to that. And I've thought about that so much where I'm like, okay, if I'm in this situation, how do Mm -hmm. I get out of it? I just want them to stop doing whatever they're doing. Right. How do I do that? Right. Your mind, when you're being choked, you involuntarily will struggle against that because you think I am dying. You're dying. Absolutely. And, And I am fighting for my life. 
Yes. And so for people who are not in that position to tell, tell us what he should have resisted, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I, no one has told me, we're going to choke you out for 30 seconds until you become calm. <laughs> right? If you give me that, then I'm, I'll call. Right. And like I said, I played that scenario over in my head, and that's part of what people of color have to do is, okay, yes. here's the situation. What do you do? What do you do? And I'm like, do you go limp? Do right. you just go completely limp? Right. But George Floyd went completely limp, yep. and they were still, still on, his, on neck. his neck. So yep. I don't, I just pray that I'm never in that situation. Right. Because I, right. I don't know what I would do. Now, I will say, we need to do a better job of this, which has occurred to me recently is, not only do we need to coach the person that's in that situation, mm-hmm. we need to coach the people that are with them in that situation. So you'll see yes. a lot of videos where this guy's being choked out or whatever. Out. And, and then you've got the wife or the husband and they're screaming. It's, it's adding to this very tense situation. Mm-hmm. And I, again, I don't have a solution to that, but I think we need to speak to each other and say, okay, if that happens, part of your job has to be to bring it way. You've got to do bring something it down. to bring it way down. Yeah. Uh, great story. I was about five years ago, I was laid off from my job. So I got a job at Lowe's and I would ride my bike to Lowe's. Mm-hmm. One day I'm late for work, riding my bike through a neighborhood and the roads closed. There's a road close sign. And I'm mm-hmm. like, man, this is for cars. I got to get to work. So I go through the road close sign. As I turn the corner, there's a police car sitting right there. Oh gosh. I knew enough not to sprint past him. Right. So I just stopped. And this young white guy gets out of the car screaming just yelling and screaming at me mm-hmm. because they are trained yes that if i can yell and scream i get you in this panic mode and there's studies that show you your iq drops like 10 20 points when mm. you're stressed mm-hmm. so they know if i stress them i get the upper hand that's part of their mm-hmm. training so mm-hmm. he's yelling and screaming at me and i'm i'm probably twice his age mm-hmm. and all i did was go okay okay (laughs) man he reloaded quite honestly he goes and then calm down right 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 but if i didn't do that if i had matched him with his intensity i don't know where that would have gone yes so yeah there's there's so many things when you talk about police stops that you know what do i tell our kids i mean yeah, we used to be, day, we used you to could know. tell them. Yes. It was very clear. Hands on <laughs> the wheel. Clear. Yes, sir. Yes. No, sir. Don't mm-hmm. say anything extra. Do whatever yeah. you got to do to make it home. Yes. And then but Philando then, Castile got shot down in exactly. his car when he did right. exactly what he was supposed to do. He did everything when, he was supposed when to do. When that happened, I was like, oh, man, we are in trouble. Yeah. And, that, and I was the same way because I was like, he told them he had a gun because that's what he was supposed to do. He was a yes. licensed carry. He had yes. a license to carry. Yes. He did everything he was supposed to do. He kept still, did what the police officer told him to do. Was but reaching the police for what, officer yes. had come and was faced with what they told him in training and what his implicit bias told him he would eventually come up against. Yep. This violent black male. And the only yes. way to get the upper hand on him was to shoot him. And shoot him. Kill him. And man, you're right. After that happened, I went, man, what do I tell my two boys now? Yeah. What, what, 
You know, I just, I, I still struggle with that. Yeah. You know, I still struggle with that because what do you say in that, you know, I mean, what, what do you tell them to do to come and home? I, and I now think- it's like, just make sure your car is all right. No broken, you yeah. know, lights. Make sure your registration is up to date. And even that won't help you because there are some cops out there who are on the prowl. And they'll see you and they'll be like, oh, okay, let me go stop him for whatever. You're going two miles over the speed limit. Or, you know, it happens. It's not far-fetched. And the one conclusion I came up with police stops is, and I need to make this just for my I need to make this more clear to my son, but it's part of your job is to make that a very, very calm situation. Calm situation. So if you have to be the one that goes, Okay. 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 Mm-hmm. To a cop that's twice your age, you might have to do that. But yeah. someone's got to bring that way down. There's a great video on YouTube from a black country and Western singer. I don't know his name. It had, just, it had come out just after uh, Philando Castillo was killed. And he said, okay, I talked mm-hmm. to a bunch of friends of mine that are police officers. And he said, our job is to make this situation calm for them as well because they have a very stressful job. So his point was, so when I'm pulled over, I roll down all the windows so they can clearly see inside my car. If it's Mm. nighttime, I'll put on the dome light, roll down all the windows so they can see into my car that that I am not a threat. There Mm -hmm. is no one hiding in my car that's going to cause them harm. Right. And he goes into that transaction doing what he has to do to make right. it a calm experience for the police officer. Isn't and I thought, wow, I've never thought about that, but that's a really good idea. That is a good idea. But isn't it something that we have to be responsible for? Again, yeah, it is. Comfort, and we shouldn't have right? to be. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, and it's totally unfair. It's unjust that we should have to do that. But if you want to stay alive, saying, you have yeah, to learn uh, yeah, exactly. what needs to happen in, yeah. in that situation in order to stay alive. Absolutely. Right. But it's, yeah, it's, so so interesting to me for sure we've had a really good conversation is there anything that you want to talk about that we have not touched upon in this conversation yeah because i started to bring this up things today are at a point that they've never been yes and that for that i'm hopeful i have to be hopeful that things will change yes and i think you're seeing that the murder of George Floyd, mm-hmm. I have never seen police departments come out and denounce their own. Mm-hmm. I have never seen mayors come out True. and denounce their own police force. Mm-hmm. To me, that's very encouraging because they have been part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Prosecutors, mayors, mm-hmm. they have all kind of, you know, they call it the blue line, <laughs> you know, like, exactly. like the blue wall where they right. will all kind of support each other. So we get this a lot too. It's only a few cops that are bad. Really? No. Well, then the good cops ain't saying enough. Exactly. Because you need to then police your own force. Yes. D.L. Hughley, the comedian, had mentioned that earlier. What other profession would you allow that in? Right. If if a bunch of surgeons said that, would you allow that? Yeah, most of us are pretty good. Now that guy, yeah, you take your chances with him when you go (laughs) into surgery. But most of he's we got a few bad apples. We That's insane. It really yeah. is. It and really so is. when I get hit with the argument that it's only a few, 
then the majority ain't doing enough because you need to start cleaning up your own. That's right. But you make it too comfortable for them. Yep. Exactly. Because you could, you could, you could solve this problem. You could weed out your own because they're causing you a lot of headaches. Exactly. They're making it more stressful for you because the more stress that the public is with you, with them, the few bad apples, quote unquote, the more stressed they are with you, which means when you encounter anybody in the public, they're going to be highly stressed because you have not done your job and weeded out the stressors. And they don't believe that any of you are willing or capable of doing it. Therefore, all of you are in cahoots. That's what they don't understand. I can guarantee you could go in any precinct across the United States and go to a police officer and say, yeah, tell me who's the problem here. Right. And they all know. They know. They know, but they're not saying anything. So this is like, so this is why it's kind of the same thing when people say, well, I'm not racist. It's like, but what are you doing to be What behavior are you supporting by not saying anything? By not saying anything. It's the same thing. You need to, if you're not racist, then you should be actively anti-racist and therefore be doing something to dismantle it. But you can't sit back and say, well, I'm not racist. And then just go about your business because you know what? You're part of the problem. Yeah. You know, you're part of the problem. Yeah. So awesome. Well, I'm going to ask you these last two questions. What is something you hope people will remember about you when you are gone? That I made a difference somehow. Yeah. 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 As you start to get older, man, you start thinking about your legacy. You <laughs> like, man. <laughs> man. <laughs> what are they going to say at my funeral? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah, hopefully they'll say, man, he did, he he did difference. make a difference where, you know, and that, and that man, again, especially since March, I've just had this horrible, overwhelming feeling that man, the country that I was born into that I didn't ask to come to, yeah, you know, my, or my ancestors didn't ask mm-hmm. to come to, we're mm-hmm. still treated as if we're a guest in our own country. Mm-hmm. That's so, that's so heartbreaking to me. It is. Yeah. It is. And, and you got a president that, man, he does not convey that we are part of this country no no so more and more we keep getting the comment go back to where you came from right like detroit right (laughs) (laughs) right well the last question i want to ask you is what is your favorite dish what is it that you love to eat pizza is the first thing i mean my wife's a great cook so anything she cooks is nice and and that was such an experience growing up in a white household and then marrying a black woman and I mean the food in those communities <laughs> is totally different. Uh, and yeah. so yeah, I yeah, I will say it was a lot easier keeping weight off <laughs> but, <yeah. laughs> before I found <laughs> before I found out how good food could taste. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Oh, so you're going to go with pizza, huh? Or your wife's cooking. We'll go with your wife's cooking. How's that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here with me today, Kevin. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed our conversation. You brought to life a lot of things. And I really hope that the, your, your uh, frequency will 
will resonate with some of yeah. the listeners, you know, and uh, bring some aha moments. Yeah. And just, so everyone always asks, especially what's going on, what can we do to help? And I used to say, I said, yes. and I think this was important. So if you're a white person and you're looking to help, you know, people of color in this struggle against race and racism. Yes. One of the things I would, because everyone would come, especially after the George Floyd incident, and they would say, yeah. well, what can we do? Yes. And my simple answer is, what if your best friend's child was unjustly killed? What would you do? What would you do? Do the same thing. Yes. But now I've changed that answer. And you know how you can help? In <laughs> November, study <sighs> up and down the ticket. Yes. Those people that have a heart to put this country back together. Yes. And so you really want to help me? Then right. you vote for people that support me as being part of this country or that, that supports yes. the LBGT community. Yes. That's how you help me. Yes. You don't have to be nice to me. You don't right. have to tell me you feel bad because another cop killed someone and looks like me. Yeah. Help me change. And the biggest change we can make is, is in, in is November. November 3rd. Absolutely. Whether it's in person or through mail. Don't believe the hype. Don't believe Get the out hype. There. Do it. Quite honestly, I keep telling my kids, the bigger the numbers, the better off we are. So the yes. more people that vote, the better off yes. we are. Yes, the better off we are. Absolutely. Yes. And thank you for plugging that because it's so true. So, so true. I've been every day trying to make sure that I'm doing something where I'm informing people about something as it pertains to the election this year. It's so important. So important. Yeah. And if you think it can't get worse, it can. Four years it, ago... A lot of people said, well, how bad could it be? How, really? <laughs> I didn't think this was going to happen. So true. It's so, and, and now you're so talking true. four more years oh, with no goodness. restrictions and no restraints. Ooh, ooh. Let's not even go changed. there. Yes. Let's not even go yes. there, right? Oh, my goodness. So is there somewhere that people can find you? Yep. So um, if you go. Because you are a speaker and an educator. So Yeah, so ahead. if you go, you can find me by the name of the book, growinguplblackandwhite.com. Okay. Or you, it, you can still find my website at kevinhoffman.com. And okay. Hoffman spelled with one F and two N's. Yes. Um, so yeah, either, awesome. either way there. Uh, awesome. Well, I will okay. definitely put that in the show notes so that people have it easily accessible when they, after they listen to you speak. Great. Thank you All very right. much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please subscribe, download, rate, review, and share because it's no fun if your friends don't know what you're talking about. Join us next time when we'll be talking to Tisa Hami about discrimination and the bait and switch. We'll see you then.